Shalom, everyone. Shalom. We're continuing our study of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we have thus far addressed a number of topics, and amongst them, the topic of sex seems to occur quite frequently. And it will continue to occur because that's a major issue in the context of the city of Corinth, which is a very decadent city. And there were actually cases of all kinds of sexual immoralities going on in the church of Corinth. And today we're going to be touching upon that topic as well, but in the context of marriage and celibacy. So I've titled the message for today, Marriage and Celibacy in Christ. And I believe that this is relevant to all of us mm. present here today. I do apologize to our little children because this topic of sex is a little too beyond their age. And yet, I will try to go through this topic as quickly as possible so that we can enter into many other exciting topics that even our little children can lean their ears to hear and be truly blessed and inspired by. Okay, let's uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. And let's read this out loud together. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Amen. Amen. Well, this chapter begins a whole new section in which Paul now begins to address the very questions that the the Corinthian Christians have been asking him. So they've been addressing this issue and they wanted Paul to give them some solid answers to their inquiries. And so Paul begins in verse 1, Now for the matters you wrote about. And there were quite a lot, many, many matters that will emerge. In this case, they were questioning about marriage the whole concept of celibacy, issue of divorce and separation. And later on in this chapter, we will address the whole issue of virginity. And then in chapter 8, the issue of food being offered to the idols. What do you do about that? In chapter 12, he addresses the topic of spiritual gifts. And finally, in chapter 16, he addresses the whole topic that's related to 
receiving collection for the Jerusalem church which is suffering because of famine. And the matter that Paul wants to address has to do with this statement, another catchphrase of the Corinthians. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not to, not to uh, espouse uh, homosexuality or anything like that. This needs to be understood in context. This is a statement advocating celibacy. It is better not to have sexual relations whatsoever with anybody. Just be celibate. And this was somehow in the mind of the Corinthians. And this was, it sounds almost like an opposition to the opinion of the previous statement. I have the right to do anything. Remember that. Remember that statement? I have the right to do anything. That was another catchphrase. And this was this libertinish notion of life. That we can do whatever with our bodies. We're free to have sex with anybody. And yet here, there seems to be a contrary opinion from some of the Corinthians who are advocating, no, it is better not to have sex and live a life as celibate. And so this is a, a more of an austere, ascetic type of group. So what we see here in the Corinthian church is basically two extreme tendencies. One, more libertinistic, more licenses in their lifestyle. The other, legalistic and advocating asceticism. And both of them were based upon bad, lousy theology regarding the human body and human sexuality. And obviously, this was a result of some form of dualism that separates the body from the soul or the mind. And we can assume that they were influenced by the Gnostics in this regard because the Gnostics believed that, that the spirit and the mind is good, is superior, but the body and the flesh is bad and inferior. As a matter of fact, even in the days of Plato, many Greek philosophers, they felt that the body was a sort of like a tomb for the spirit. So the whole idea is to, to liberate the spirit, liberate the mind from this deathly body. And so the Corinthians responded to this Gnostic influence. And first response was, well, if the body is bad and the spirit is good and spirit is so superior than the body, it doesn't really matter what you do with the body. Let's just indulge our body and engage in bodily freedom to do whatever. It will not affect my spirituality. And this is the libertinistic notion that we see prevalent all throughout today. The second response was completely the opposite. If the body is bad, then we have to treat the body harshly. We have to restrain the body. We have to kill the body. And through this restraint, they were advocating a lifestyle that is ascetic in nature. And so, 
This is what Paul has to say in response to this saying. It is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But Paul says in verse 2, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And as I mentioned, the immediate context here is that of sexual immorality, all kinds of sexual issues happening in the Corinthian church. And this church was placed right in the middle of the most decadent city of Corinth, where they prided in, in this tremendous temple dedicated to the sex goddess, Aphrodite. Now, when Paul says that since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband, Paul is speaking like a typical Jew. He's saying, let's go back to the Genesis mandate. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the statement, it is not good that the man should be alone. Okay? The some of the Corinthians were saying, it is good to be celibate. But Apostle Paul saying, according to the Jewish tradition, it is not good that man should be alone. In verse 24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. He's talking about the proper context of sex. In marriage. Marriage is good. He's affirming marriage. Now this doesn't mean he's denouncing celibacy as we will see at the conclusion part of this text. And then he gives some guidance as to how husbands and wives should relate to one another. In verses 3 and 4, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Obviously, the whole thing about marriage is there's the, the sexual freedom and, in this case, sexual obligation to one another between husband and wife. Only in the context of marriage. What does marriage imply? Marriage implies this sense of union between husband and wife. And this union is signified by physically, sexually, these two partners coming together. But it is more than that. It is a spiritual union. Paul is Constantly advocating the fact that this is spiritual, this is mystical. As a matter of fact, if we study the book of Ephesians, he talks about the union between husband and wife as signifying that of the union between Christ, the Lord, the head over the church, and the church. And so, if we are to unite together as husband and wife, bodily, 
sexually and spiritually, then we don't have the right to insist upon my body as my own. This is not my saying. This is what Paul is saying. That our bodies belong to each other. We should share our bodies. I realize that in marriage, there are times when um, husband and wife, they should with, withhold sex. I mean, they might be just disinterested in having sex. They might be bored by this whole thing. They might even be tired. And sometimes they might be resentful of one another. And so they don't want to have that kind of intimacy. I understand that. But remember, the issue with litigation, the Corinthians were taking these matters of conflict to the public. And they were fighting it out over there over this whole issue of individual rights. The same thing can happen between husband and wife when they insist upon my right. And so what Paul is saying is that as husband and wife, you do have individual rights, but the individual rights must sometimes be denied for the sake of union. Are you willing to do that? If you can't do that, What's the value of marriage? Because when you made a vow of marriage, you were willing to say, I am going to deny everything if I have to for the sake of our union. And this includes your body as well. I will not speak more on this. This can get very sensitive and very subtle. So I don't want to touch upon this, but know what Paul is saying. Paul is simply saying, even your bodies must be shared with one another as husband and wife. It's not yours. I mean, personally, it is my philosophy that I should take care of my body, not simply for selfish reason, so that I can look good, I can be strong for my ego's sake. I want to take care of my body for my wife. I want to take care of my body for my children because it's not just mine my body is for them as well and my body has to be healthy in order for me to allow my body to carry me to serve my wife and to serve my children and serve the body of Christ so as Christians we don't really own anything do we we're simply stewards of all the resources that God has granted unto us including our bodies Our bodies are not our own. If it was, then I can just waste it away. I can do whatever. I can be lazy and passive and not take care of my body. But the reason why I must take care of my body is because I need to be a good steward of this body which ought to serve others around me. And in the family context, my body should serve for the purpose of my family coming together, having strength to having energy to play with Anna, and having the perseverance with which I can run the race with my two grown-up daughters who, who are so active out there in the world, and, and my wife. I want to reserve my body for my wife so that I can serve her. I can uphold her. But Paul says in verse 5, 
do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He just talked about mutual responsibility to share your bodies in the context of marriage. Now he's talking about mutual abstinence from sex in the context of marriage. In other words, there must also be room for restraint and self-denial. And that's based upon three conditions. First of all, mutual consent. Husband and wife need to agree together. That's the important thing. We need to understand what marriage is about. We need to understand the fact that marriage is about relinquishing our rights for the sake of being united together as one. But in this case, we also need to be mutual about the fact that, yes, we may have the right to sex, but we should also exercise the right to abstain from sex. I think that's true freedom. But there's another condition here, and it's for a limited time. The Greek word is pros kairos. And kairos is different from chronos, because chronos has to do with the time, length. Kairos has to do with moment. So for a limited time, limited moment, yes, you can do that, but this should not be the norm. And when you do this, there's another condition. It's for the spiritual purpose of praying and fasting. And maybe you want to dedicate yourself to the Lord for a season and time. That's fine. But then immediately, Paul says, you need to get back together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I will not dwell on this topic either. It's pretty much self-evident in this text what Paul is saying. Okay? Very practical teaching coming from the mouth of Paul. It's good for you to come together with consent. It's good for you to separate, remove yourself so that you can privately devote yourself to the Lord. But don't let that be the norm because there are so many temptations out there. And it is better to come together as soon as possible to fulfill your conjugal duty as husband and wife. But the thing that I want to dwell upon today is a new topic. And that is the topic of celibacy. And that is addressed in verses 6 to 9. Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now as Paul is giving this advice, he makes sure that this is not a command from the Lord. Because command or the mandate had to do with the fact that two singers should come together and engage in the covenant of marriage as husband and wife. And so he says, this is just a concession. This is just my mediating comment. 
I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. And he points out the fact that he has a calling as a celibate. And this is a question that a lot of scholars have been asking. Was Paul never married? Into his old age, he never got married? Or did he get married and separated? We don't know because some of the things that he's saying here in the following text almost seems very subjective, almost like he's talking about his own story. And perhaps the story goes something like this. He was married to this woman, but this woman was pagan. She would not accept Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And she decided that when Paul has this calling that he's pursuing, that she can't live with him. So she leaves the man. And Paul never got married afterwards. And that could be one explanation. Another explanation could be that because of Paul's apostolic work, even though he was married to a Christian woman, she releases him for the works of service. So he operates like a celibate. Or the third option, which I personally tend to lean towards, is that he was just celibate all along from the beginning. But that's not important. The important thing is he's a single person now. And he's leading his life as a celibate. And he feels like that he is a great role model to others. And he's suggesting that this is an option that is available for the singles. Now, there are many reasons for Paul's personal preference for celibacy. And that is, uh, perhaps he was a, a person of a difficult personality. If he were to be married, he'll give a lot of hard time to his wife. When John Wesley was like that, you know, John Wesley's marriage to his wife was a, a very good model. And so he basically stayed away from, you know, marital context. He just roamed around and was an itinerant evangelist and so forth. He served the Lord very well, but he's not a good model of a husband in that sense. Maybe he just had a very difficult personality for marriage. Another uh, preference that uh, Paul, the reason why he would prefer celibacy is perhaps he has such a strong inner resolve to be a celibate. He can handle this. It takes a special type of inner strength to be able to handle celibacy and not fall into temptation over all kinds of sexual temptations that's out there. Or basically, maybe he had no real need for companionship because he considered companionship of his apostolic team to be sufficient. Whatever the reason may be, Paul, his primary reason for advocating celibacy is so that he can be free from all kinds of family responsibilities to focus on his unique apostolic calling. Now, you know that the Roman Catholic Church, they advocate celibacy for anyone who wants to enter into priesthood. That's their regulation. Okay. And, you know, they are constantly vying for some kind of uh, right to a priesthood those who are married. 
and women priests, and that's happening today. There's a discussion about all that. But the basic tradition is that the priesthood is for male, and these male had to be celibate. But that's not true in the Eastern Orthodoxy. In Eastern Orthodoxy, priests could marry. Hallelujah. But if you're going to become a bishop, an overseer, they had to forfeit that and become a celibate. Why? Because the bishop has to do a lot of itinerant type of ministries. They have to go all over the place. They don't have time for family. So it's a form of denial for them, a practical matter for them. This was not a, a legalistic binding thing for the Eastern Orthodox. And I really like that. I really like the concept that the priests can be married. And yet, for practical reason, if you have responsibility that takes you everywhere and you don't have time to take care of the family, then it is better that you not marry. And that's exactly the way the bishops operate in the Eastern Orthodox Church. However, celibacy should not be something that is imposed upon. If you are sensing this as a call, then it has to be something that is volitional based upon your calling. In verse 9, Paul says, If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Another very practical statement. You can't handle celibacy. You can't handle being, being pure without having somebody there to be a companion to you, without somebody fulfilling your sexual need, then it is better for you to marry. So what are the conditions for celibacy? Paul is advocating here. Well, first of all, he's saying that you have to be gifted. Celibacy is a spiritual gift. You have to be endowed in a very special way for you to say, I have a calling as a celibate. Your inner nature has to be in such a way that you can handle celibacy. And there was a time when I thought maybe God might be calling me to be a celibate. And I'm sure, Jamie, did you ever think that maybe there was a time when maybe God was calling you to be a celibate? Maybe our wives, same thing. Okay? We go through that. Brother Jinyuk, he is a celibate right now. But now his question is, should I get married? Right? And uh, for a season in time, I had no problem, no issue. I thought I could really be a celibate for the Lord. Actually, I wanted to be a martyr. So <laughs> if I'm going to get martyred, I should be a celibate and not place that kind of pain and agony to my family. That's not my choice, is it? But then I realized maybe it's not my nature to be celibate. Actually, it is more of my nature to be married. And so when the right time came, God put some kind of spark within me and passion arose. And I fell in love with this 
a woman. And I proposed to her, and we got married. And she doesn't think that I proposed to her, but I, I did. I, I proposed to her on day one of our dating. So I guess what I'm saying is the criteria for celibacy are basically twofold. Number one, do you have that special calling? Is it a spiritual gift for you? Are you specially endowed? Secondly, check your inner self. Your inner makeup. Do you have that strength? Do you have the inner resolve? Can you handle that? If you can't handle it, then you may have to think about the other option. But having said that, even marriage requires calling. Marriage is also a spiritual gift. Marriage is not to be taken lightly. People say, yeah, I want to get married because I want to have the freedom for sex and I need a companion and I need somebody to you know, cook for me and do my laundry and you know, have my babies. And Oh, come on now. Animals can do that too. But human beings have to rise above that. So we have to ask this question. Am I married because it is my calling, because it is my spiritual gift? I'm apt for marriage. I can make marriage work. And second question is the same thing that we ask regarding celibacy. Do I have it in me? Am I of that nature? That I can be intimate with a person and, and enter into that kind of covenant marriage. So you see, both in marriage and singlehood, it has to do with affirmation. That comes from God calling us, gifting us, endowing us to operate in certain way. And secondly, God had to make us that way. And that's all we need to check out. Did God make me this way? Is God calling me into this way? Is this one of my spiritual gifts? And today, we really need marriage as spiritual gift. Not everyone's gifted for marriage. And that's why marriages fall apart in the first three years in so many cases. And sometimes marriage falls apart after children grow up. And the couples feel like they're not obligated anymore to their children so they can divorce. That's happening all over the world. So we realize maybe they weren't really called for that. But if you had that calling and it's a sure calling, then your marriage will be solid. If not, it'll always be on the rock, rocky and shaking. So let me review very quickly. Paul says in verse 1, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. As though this is a law, this is a regulation, this is some kind of high elite principle of life, celibacy. And they pride it in that. But Paul says, no. In verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. He's going back to the mandate 
in Genesis 2.18 that it is not good for a man to be alone. And it is good for two persons who are made for each other, man and woman, by the way, to be husband and wife, entering into the covenant of marriage. And that's the norm. That's the context for sex. Sex is only for the marriage bed. And there has to be a mutuality, a sense of agreement in marriage. That's what marriage is all about, agreement. There has to be mutual agreement for sex. There has to be mutual agreement for abstinence. But the power of unity, that's what makes marriage such a testimony unto others. And having said that, it's not all about marriage. There's so much room for celibacy. Apostle Paul was a celibate. Jesus Christ was a celibate. So whether you are a celibate or a married person, it all depends. Just make sure that you have a calling from the Lord for each. Just make sure that this is a spiritual gift. You can say, this is my gift. I'm good at this. I'm born for this. And just make sure that you have the nature for that. Either you, are, you have the nature for marriage or you have nature for celibacy. Just be certain about that. Amen. Amen. I almost want to take some questions at this time, but this is just a, a Sunday sermon, so I'll end my message with this. Let's pray together.